0: When the COVID-19 pandemic began in March 2020, I had an uneasy feeling that Philippine Xs would be disproportionately affected by it. The first nurse to die from COVID-19 in Los Angeles was Philippine X. And soon after, more and more stories emerge about the plight of Philippine X healthcare workers. The connection between U.S. nursing and the Philippines isn't an accident. The U.S. established nursing schools in the Philippines during the American colonial period from 1898 to 1946 and implemented an immigration policy that recruited Philippine-trained nurses to the U.S. to fill worker shortages. This history still echoes today as nurses from the Philippines comprise the largest share of U.S. nurses who are trained internationally. So why has the impact of COVID-19 on Filipinx and other Asian communities been ignored, even though they make up one of the fastest
1: growing racial groups in the U.S.? That was Carlos Oronce, reading from his first opinion, health disparities for Philippine Xs in healthcare are disguised by data aggregation. Carlos is a primary care physician, a research fellow at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine in the Los Angeles VA, and president-elect of the Philippine XAO AO Community Health Association. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor.
0: Hi, I'm Angus Macaulay, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. I'm here with Carl Hick, Chief Digital and Information Officer at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Carl, how is Takeda using technology to create potentially life-changing treatments and vaccines? Thanks, Angus. Data and digital technologies are fundamentally changing the way that we live and we work. Here at Takeda, we see these advances as a real opportunity to drive better health outcomes through more personalized, patient-centric experiences. For example, we're exploring the expanded use of AI augmented algorithms to provide
1: faster, personalized diagnoses for patients and to predict treatment responses. Another way we're investing in new tech here at Takeda is by empowering our employees
0: to learn new skills. Think of that as a democratization of technology in emerging areas like robotic process automation and predictive analytics. We also have identified the need for new technology talent on our team. We're hiring for data scientists, Data engineers, cloud and solution architects. These are just a few of the many ways that we're working to develop our talent and use data and digital technologies to build a better future for patients. Thanks, Carl. For more information, visit Takeda.com. That's www.takeda.com.
1: Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you, Carlos. Thank you for having me, Pat. So where did you grow up in the U.S.? Were you in or connected to a Filipino community?
0: So I originally grew up uh, in Northern Virginia in the suburbs of D.C. That's Pretty much sort of where I was born, raised, went to school in Virginia as well. Um there were there's a lot of Filipino Americans that that live there. Um and and you know, just to sort of um preface, you know, I use the terms Filipinx, Filipino-Filipina sort of interchangeably. Um and I know we'll, you know, kind of touch on that a little bit later. Um, but I, I grew up in a community that had a lot of Filipinos, but um unlike other major cities in the US, there wasn't necessarily a Concentrated ethnic enclave, um, but when I went to college uh, at the University of Virginia, there was um, a uh, Filipino organization there, and that's how I sort of um, explored my identity. Some of the cultural, historical issues that sort of comes with with being, you know, Filipino American.
1: Did you have family here in the U.S. or in the Philippines who worked in healthcare?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I have um, an aunt who is a long time a uh, nurse in uh, psychiatry, as well as uh, several cousins who went to nursing school back in the Philippines.
1: When did you first notice that people of Philippine origin or descent seemed to be a little bit overrepresented in nursing and possibly other healthcare work?
0: Yeah, so I think a lot of that um, developed as I was growing up. So I think uh, I often would hear stories about uh, Filipino nurses, and um, how common they were uh, in the United States in healthcare settings. I think my sort of consciousness, like real consciousness about that as, as maybe um, a really unique aspect of Filipino identity was during college. And you know, I met other people in my Filipino organization who were nursing students. Um, many of us talked a lot about how we had relatives that were nurses. Uh, Some of my friends who were pre-meds had mothers that were nurses. um, And it became, you know, something that was very, very evident. And I think something that was also part of uh, some people's immigration stories. So some folks, uh, you know, they were born in America, but their mom came because of nursing. They got a job, you know, say in Virginia Beach, where there's a large community of Filipinos or in you know, rural Roanoke or, you know, in Richmond as well.
1: So in the U.S., nurses have traditionally been women. As my nurse spouse and I were talking about this podcast, she mentioned that she's seen more male nurses who hail from the Philippines than from any other group. Is there a different view of nursing in the U.S. and in the Philippines?
0: That's an interesting observation. So one of the things that I have seen is some male nurses – um that are filipino in the united states who actually trained as physicians oh really in the philippines and so because of some barriers like uh the difficulty of getting um trained in an american residency the the difference in wages um you know, there's an opportunity cost to doing residency in the United States versus going straight into nursing. Um, and and for Filipinos, remittances are very important to the economy for um, taking care of family in the Philippines. Um, and, and so I think that plays a major reason why some, some people who may have trained as physicians who are predominantly like men ended up uh, changing occupations when they come to the United States.
1: And by remittance, you mean people living and working here who are sending money back home?
0: Yeah. So the Philippines is, I think, number four um, country in the world with remittances, and they make up something like 10% of GDP in the Philippines. It's like almost $40 billion a year.
1: Wow. So you wrote in your essay that the connection between the U.S. nursing workforce and the Philippines isn't an accident. Can you tell us a little bit about the history?
0: Yeah. So the Philippines became a colony of the United States in 1898, after the Spanish-American War, and it was an American colony until 1946. And so during that period of American colonization, nursing began as part of Sort of the American colonial experiment of trying to engage in global development and trying to build the healthcare system in the Philippines. So there were nursing schools, there were new hospitals being built. Um, many of those nurses ended up coming to America for further training and then starting nursing schools um, uh, in the Philippines. And so the fact that Philippine nurses end up becoming a major source of labor today um, you know, was part of this intentional policy that came afterwards, but its origin is, is a little um, sort of accidental in that it, it was a result of, of the U.S. Uh, investing in the Philippines' healthcare system. So so following the, the 1946 uh, independence from, from the United States, There was actually uh, certain policies in the United States that also then treated Filipinos differentially in terms of visas. And so there was like an exchange program. And a lot of this is detailed in depth in a really foundational book called Empire of Care by Catherine Siniza Choi, who's a historian of, of, of Philippine nursing in the United States. And so there was this exchange program that allowed Philippine nurses to come to the United States for something like two years, uh, get further training in America and then go back, um, and then ultimately, um, like in the 1960s, uh, this started to really accelerate, and, th- and there was actually reasons for that both in the United States as well as in the Philippines. So, in the United States, um, in the 60s, was the passage of Medicare and Medicaid, and we often think of that as domestic health policy, but that had ramifications, you know, abroad, especially with the Philippines, where there were already nursing schools there, and because it was an American colony, the training happened in English. Uh, the schooling was all sort of in the American healthcare paradigm of, of of nursing training, and so there was this perfect opportunity. You had insurance expansion take place. You had more people who were um, in the hospital who needed to be cared for, and so in order to address some of these workforce shortages. Um, They started to look abroad. American uh, hospitals started to look abroad. And uh, the president at the time, uh, the dictator Ferdinand Marcos, actually saw an opportunity to, you know, address some of the issues that he was facing domestically by capitalizing on this. And so he actually created uh an office for uh overseas foreign workers so OFWs is is the abbreviation that's used in 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 the Philippines and in in sort of the diaspora to to refer to uh migrants who go abroad and and work abroad and send those remittances and so that relationship was then cultivated by Marcos and then also seen as a positive thing for American
1: hospitals it sounds like the connection is still strong you wrote that some US hospitals are recruiting nurses in the Philippines to replace nurses who are quitting over vaccine mandates? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's still um,
0: still policy. It's uh, the OFW office still exists. There are still campaigns and advertisements. Not only is it part of policy, but it's become part of this national narrative in the Philippines about you know who are heroes, and so OFWs are seen as heroes in. Philippine society.
1: What were you doing when the pandemic emerged in California?
0: Uh, so I was a well, I still am a, a research fellow here at UCLA. So I, I completed my internal medicine residency training in 2019, and so it was the first year of my uh, research fellowship. So uh, the, the fellowship is called the National Clinician Scholars Program um, at UCLA, and um, it's a it's a two year fellowship. But I ended up staying. Uh, for uh, another research fellowship through the, the VA health system.
1: And was that disrupted by COVID-19?
0: Absolutely. You know, I was on the roster for backup hospitalists, and fortunately, you know, never was was called in because they had a system that, you know, allowed care to continue to be delivered. Um they ended up needing people really more for testing. So when the VA had outdoor testing facilities in Los Angeles, um like in the parking lot, um I did a lot of that, um, especially during the summer surge last year.
1: Yeah, it got pretty rocky in Los Angeles, didn't it?
0: Yeah. And my wife is a OBGYN um, at LA County, and LA County was was completely, you know, swamped with with patients.
1: You wrote that the first nurse to die from COVID-19 in Los Angeles was Filipinex and you began seeing more and more stories about Filipinex healthcare workers and COVID. Is that mainly because they're overrepresented in nursing or healthcare or does it have something to do with the types of jobs they have in nursing or healthcare?
0: Yeah, so Filipinex nurses make up 4% of US nurses and so um and and they're very sort of visible in in inpatient settings. Uh, Filipino nurses tend to go to really high need areas, um, as the history you know kind of showed, and that that nurses were needed to fill shortages. So a lot of Filipino nurses work in places that are like critical access hospitals in rural areas, a lot of inner city urban hospitals, and a lot of places that. Um, probably didn't have as much access to PPE or, or maybe the, the operational resources to uh, get it compared to, you know, maybe say the huge academic medical centers. Um, and because, you know, like I, I sort of alluded to that because Filipino nurses uh, often are providing uh, remittances, sending money back home to family, they're, they're often supporting, you know, not just their immediate family, but maybe their parents. Um, there's... There's a high rate of of Filipino households that are multi-generational that also have uh, one healthcare worker that's there. I think actually in census data, it's like almost 40% of Filipino households um, are multi-generational and have one healthcare worker. So just a very, um, uh, you know, the conditions are perfect for, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, transmission. Um, and, And because Filipino nurses are providing remittances and supporting family transnationally back in the Philippines. They 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 work in settings where the pay is better, and so inpatient settings, ICU settings, um, night shifts, um, long term care facilities. You know, I think there was a study uh, earlier this year that used survey data from 2018 and showed that. Uh, I think almost 50% of Filipino nurses work in inpatient settings versus about 41% of white nurses in the United States. And for long-term acute care facilities, which you know take care of extremely chronically sick patients who sometimes are actually on a chronic vent, uh, about 7% of Filipino nurses work in those settings uh, versus, I believe, 3% of white nurses. So there's occupational disparities, even within the nursing profession, that um, create sort of those structural conditions that, that, that allow for um, you know, increased susceptibility for COVID-19.
1: Well, you add the burden of not being bound to send a remittance, but, but having a feeling an obligation to do that might be another burden because you don't want to call in sick. You know, you don't want to be out sick. So because so many people are depending on you, that seems like it could keep people working longer maybe than they should have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um and, and that study that I cited um you know wasn't wasn't done during the time of COVID, but when they talked to Filipino nurses and interviewed them. You know there was there was high rates of burnout, but people were less likely to retire early, less likely to to quit, sort of in the face of um, really difficult working conditions because of those reasons that they you know felt obligated to to support um, family abroad.
1: Did you do you have any personal experience from family members with burnout? Not
0: specifically like within my immediate family so actually through my conversations with members of the philippine nurses association of you know southern california which has been around for 60 years um and and, and a lot of their members who have been a part of the philippine XAO ao community health association association they've talked a lot about the profound burnout that that is happening among their ranks and there is you know some cultural kind of dimensions to this. And that's the fact that a lot of nurses also see um, their patients as their own family members in many ways. And so, you know, I think one of the quotes that I saw in a study was, um, or or maybe even in a news article was that, you know, this individual saw this older adult that they were caring for in the ICU as their mom or as their dad. And so that kind of shaped sort of their, you know, dedication. Uh, to their profession, and there were stories early in the pandemic, um, even in here in like Los Angeles and in the LA Times about how some Filipino nurses early on in the pandemic, when you know PPE was scarce, you know patients would have a code, they, they'd lose their pulse, and in those situations, you need to start CPR immediately, and and oftentimes, you know there was there was times where where nurses would would go and and get, start CPR without. Um, you know, without PPE. And and it was sort of this uh, dedication to their profession, to their patient, um, and, and sort of those types of pressures that, that also kind of shapes this story.
1: A central point of your essay is that statistics kept showing that Asian Americans, the overarching group that Filipinx people are lumped into, were, quote, doing better during the pandemic and were less likely to die from COVID-19 compared to Black and Latino communities. That doesn't square with the story you're telling. What's the disconnect? Is is this the data problem?
0: This is partially a data problem, and this is sort of a kind of meta discussion around Asian American as a demographic category, as a racial category, and speaks to the power of you know the model minority myth so when you take a group of of people many communities from an enormously large geographic area and you treat them all sort of the same under this aggregate banner of of asian-american you lose you know in the average um those disparities so we see this for example, in income inequality within Asian Americans, which has sort of the widest difference between people in the top 10 percent of income and those in the bottom 10 percent. Um, so, so you lose a lot of that in, in the way that we we treat Asians as, as sort of monolithic. And reading those, um, those stories in the news media, because they sounded so familiar, um, you know, especially the, the Stat News article, there was one in CNN, and, and uh, the LA Times. And these stories felt so familiar because it was it was that immigrant story, you know, of working, taking care of family, taking care of parents, taking care of family uh, back in the Philippines. And then sort of the policy scholarly side of me then sort of was angry that there wasn't more attention on this. and. You know, one of my collaborators and, and mentors here at UCLA is, is Nenez Ponce, who has built a career on, on advocating for disaggregated data for Asian Americans. And I, and I heard her uh, speak um, with another uh, Filipinx American researcher at Brown and as well as a sociologist at UC Davis who were all kind of collecting data and stories on this. And, and I reached out and you know I, I said, is is there any coordinated effort of trying to advocate for better data for maybe trying to incorporate um, uh, Filipino Americans in, in sort of this national response? And and there wasn't. And so, you know, that that actually led us to to, to start um the Philippine XAO Community Health Association because everyone was working kind of in their professional settings, whether they were public health researchers, clinicians, nurses, um, and everyone was kind of experiencing COVID sort of in their silo. And actually, um, yeah, we were all very angry that that sort of lost in the national conversation were Filipino Americans, despite the U.S. healthcare system's reliance on Filipino on, you know, American nurses. And so that allowed us an opportunity to, You know, share sort of our experiences, share how we were feeling and start to brainstorm, you know, ways to to raise awareness around this issue and think about, well, what are some of the structural fixes, you know, and and that really kind of focused my eye on the data disaggregation piece, because if you don't even have data, you you don't know where the problem is.
1: And so let's go back to something that you brought up earlier in the essay and this conversation. You use the term Philippine X. Something I hadn't known before working with you on the essay is that the Filipino language is gender neutral. It doesn't differentiate between genders like Spanish does, and so the Filipi- the term Filipino itself is kind of gender neutral. Then, can you walk me through the a little bit of the distinctions between the different terms?
0: Yeah, so I encountered the the term Filipinx maybe three years ago. Um, sort of in social media uh, through different Filipino-American circles. And it was a way of trying to address sort of inclusivity and, uh, you know, non-binary people. And it was uh, largely adopted after sort of Latinx in the United States. And there were, you know, linguists who did point out that Filipino is gender neutral. And then there were others that I saw on another side of the argument that did, you know, say that, you know, Spanish history and colonization in of itself also has been extremely patriarchal. And that had been imposed on uh, indigenous Filipinos for, you know, 300 years. And so Ultimately, there isn't necessarily consensus on that, but I think of it as a way to um, be as inclusive as possible. Now, within Tagalog, which is the one of the most commonly spoken dialects in, in Filipino, in, in terms of, uh, of sort of him, her, and, and, and uh, those types of kind of nouns, the, the word xia, S-I-Y-A, is actually what's used to refer to other people and that is also a gender neutral term so that's often used by by some filipinos and and filipino-americans as well
1: were you close to anybody who was sort of disparately affected um friends neighbors people of your organization that were truly affected by covid
0: yeah so family friends you know uh family in the philippines um, especially during vaccine rollout, and um, you know, had one uncle actually just got discharged in the Philippines um, after being having a 16 day stay for COVID. Um, my wife's family friend, uh, my, my wife is also uh, Filipino, and and one of her family friends passed away in in April of last year. And the friends from like college who I knew in nursing, um, you know, were sort of sharing stories on social media. And a lot of those conversations started to bubble up and take place. And, you know, I think when I started to see some of those news stories, I, I reached out to more and more community health organizations and I was like, there, there's something, like this is, there's, something is happening and, and we don't have a good handle of it, except for the fact that there are all these news stories. And then I saw, um, you know, that website kanlungan.net and it was a tribute to all the Filipino nurses who had passed away. And even when I looked at Kaiser Health News and The Guardian, they had a whole uh, gallery of you know, who the healthcare workers who died. It was incredibly haunting to see um, you know, so many faces of, of Filipino healthcare workers um, you know, who looked like they very much could be relatives. It, it, was, it was pretty haunting.
1: You mentioned a report from National Nurses United showing that while only 4% of U.S. nurses are Philippine X, they've so far accounted for 26% of COVID-related deaths among nurses. That's a shocking number.
0: Yeah, it, it is. It is a horrifying number, a horrifying disparity, I think emblematic of the historical issues that we're discussing. And I think importantly a statistic we would have never known without the work of that national nurses united um, union um, which speaks i think to the policy failures and the continued policy failures within our national response to COVID 19 because it illustrates that we don't even have a good grasp of we don't have situational awareness, essentially.
1: Uh, just to be clear, though, we've been talking about healthcare workers, but this isn't just a problem for healthcare workers, isn't it? it I mean, COVID seems to have disproportionately affected the Filipinx community, regardless of employment.
0: Yeah, we focus on nursing because because it's it's pretty common. But in, in census data, there's also um, in Filipinx American households, there is uh, a large number of of. Younger people, younger adults who work in frontline essential work positions, a lot of sort of low-income young adults, and then they often live in multi generational households. And so, especially early on in the pandemic, that was sort of the spark that you know propagated some some infection and transmission as
1: well. Is aggregating data a problem only for Asian Americans, or is it a is is there a bigger issue here? I think there's definitely a bigger issue.
0: Interestingly, I think it was in 97 that OMB, the, the, the Federal Office of Management and Budget, started to actually uh, disaggregate data in their some of their data collection um, efforts. And so um, splitting apart um, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders from Asian Americans, uh, I think started then, um, and in the census, even now, they, they collect information based off of, uh, you know, subgroup or, or community that you identify with. Um, and, and so that's that's, you know, great. And, and there was, I believe, a provision in the Affordable Care Act that also said that population based surveys uh, that are conducted by the Department of Health and Human Services must collect disaggregated
1: data by by ethnicity. So once for policy wonks like you and me, disaggregated has a specific meaning. How about for people who aren't familiar with the term, just what briefly does it mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for that. <laughs> um so disaggregated data really means taking these large categories and splitting them into the smaller categories that are more meaningful for the people who identify with those categories, you know, for for many in, um, in, in the United States, Asian American doesn't really feel as relevant as say, their specific ethnic identity. And, and I think that speaks to sort of
1: this social political construction of Asian um, as as a racial category. I'm, I'm sure there are remedies for this. You mentioned a California law that might be a step in the right direction. Can you describe that briefly?
0: Yeah, so that was uh, California's um, AB 1726. And so that policy was passed a few years ago and uh, mandated that the state public health department actually collect disaggregated ethnicity data. Um, I believe the implementation of that, though, is a few years
1: from now. You've mentioned electronic health records, the bane of every clinician's existence could also be helpful here how would they work yeah absolutely
0: so there, there's there's um a growing movement in healthcare to ensure the accuracy of race ethnicity language data um in electronic healthcare records and i think this is sort of health system specific oftentimes when a patient goes to the doctor and they get asked what race or ethnicity they identify as like Oftentimes, that they actually aren't asked that question. It's sort of a frontline like clinic, like staffer, um, like a like a check in person who will just make an assumption and check off a box, and so that leads to um, uh, inaccuracies. But that's you know one piece of it. I think there needs to be more policy direction from federal and state institutions, and of course, there's always the role of how can healthcare payers also you know promote this. And, um, you know, if there's a way to incentivize the more accurate collection of that data in a way that is self-reported from patients, I think that is another potential uh, solution. And I I don't think there's going to be a magic bullet. I think there's going to be sort of a wholesale sector-wide, industry-wide
1: kind of effort uh, that this is an important issue. The emotional turmoil, roller coaster, whatever you want to call it, of COVID-19 is far from over. Has it been extra difficult knowing what you know about your community?
0: I think there's sort of two pieces of this. I think for me as a clinician and as a researcher, I see a lot of it also as a public health problem that needs to be addressed, and then sort of on the personal side, as the Filipino American healthcare worker, I see this as, you know, an issue of, you know, justice for my community, a community that has a long, complicated history with the United States because of colonialism, and because of. Structural racism and and being part of the the Asian American community um, and having to deal with you know the 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 xenophobia that's that's been occurring over the course of the COVID nineteen pandemic the subsequent mental health effects um, and, and sort of this continued grappling and trying to address and dismantle the the harmful effects of the of the model minority myth but I think I, I really really have enjoyed. Um, and have been energized by, you know, a lot of my colleagues uh, who I've connected with uh, remotely over the course of of the pandemic with the Philippine XAO Community Health Association because they're incredibly like smart, dedicated um, individuals in the community who we all kind of share this this experience and, and shared history and also this moral kind of commitment to to make sure that this doesn't happen again for for our communities and that we finally are able to have the data and and the policies to to better address these these health disparities
1: not everybody gets to channel their frustration into their expertise and do something like what you're doing so congratulations on having that outlet it's been a pleasure talking with you today Carlos I've really enjoyed it
0: Same here. Thank you so much, Pat, for for the opportunity to, to speak with you today and to publish my piece in Stat News.
1: Thank you for listening to the First Opinion podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show, or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.